What's good, y'all? You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. It's the second half of September, which means it's the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month. So Hispanic Heritage Month, if you don't know, runs from September 15th to October 15th. And some of y'all are like, wait, why do Hispanic Heritage Month start in the middle of the month? And I know you want to make some CP time jokes, but the reason is that the 15th of September marks the anniversary of independence from Spain for a whole lot of countries. We're talking about El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, and Costa Rica. Mexico actually declared its independence from Spain on the 16th. And then you have October 12th, which is Dia de la Raza, or Day of the Race. It's the day that Christopher Columbus landed in the Caribbean. And a few Latin American countries celebrated as the day that the Hispanicization of the Americas began. And I guess... We're just going to leave aside the whole business with Christopher Columbus and the massacres and the plunder and the slaughtering and the slavery that he kind of kicked off, whatever. But Hispanic, as a descriptor, was meant to capture people with heritages from like several dozen countries with very distinct histories. And in surveys, the Pew Research Center has found over and over that most Latinos or Hispanics primarily identify when asked by the countries of their familiar origin. So someone says, I'm Mexican, or I'm Cuban, or I'm Panamanian. But in terms of a big pan-ethnic label, Pew finds that most people prefer the term Hispanic to describe themselves. Latino is the next most popular descriptor. And this is just funny to me because Hispanic is a term we very rarely use on Code Switch. We tend to opt for Latinx or Latine increasingly. But as Pew found, Latinx is a term that very few Hispanic people are even aware of let alone use. They also told us that the people who tend to use the term Latinx tend to be younger, they tend to be female, they tend to be college-educated. So basically, the exact demographic that rocks with code switch. But anyway, this notion of Hispanic identity in the United States is a really recent invention and kind of a haphazard one. We learned that a few years ago from Christina Mora. She's a sociologist at UC Berkeley, and she also wrote the book Making Hispanics, how activists, bureaucrats, and media created a new American. In 2017, Christina Mora sat down with my former co-host, Shireen Marisol-Moraji, to talk about how Hispanic, as a category and as an identity, came to be. Here's Shireen. You argue in your book, Making Hispanics, that this Hispanic or Latino or what some are now calling Latinx uh, (laughs) pan-ethnic identity in the U.S. is actually a fairly recent phenomenon, speaking of what we call ourselves. And I just have to say that I know people don't think these terms mean exactly the same thing, but they're all used to group people of the Latin American diaspora in the U.S. together. But in the 60s, you write that the three largest Latin American diaspora groups, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and Cubans, lived in different parts of the U.S. They had different needs. And there was very little appetite for an umbrella category back then. Can you tell us why they didn't want to be grouped together? Oh, the issue was really contentious. On the one hand, you had uh, Puerto Ricans unsure of whether an alliance with Mexican-Americans would mean that uh, their issues would be swept under the rug because uh, Mexicans were much larger 
Mexican Americans were in Texas, sometimes under Jim Crow restrictions, or in places like California, where they were segregated to different schools and discriminated against. Puerto Ricans had these sort of same issues, but were also really concerned about the Puerto Rican statehood question and these questions about what are the rights that they had as citizens. And at the same time, you had these two groups then having to contend with Cubans, many of which claimed that they were white, many of which saw themselves as not necessarily completely distinct from everyday Anglo-Americans in Florida. Mm -hmm. To the extent that they were going to make demands on the state, it was to get the state to pay attention to Cuba. Mm -hmm. They were much less interested in making a demand based on minority rights. It just wasn't in their purview. There was no Hispanic option, right, on that 1960 decennial census? No, not at all. There had been something called the Spanish surname count. And the Spanish surname count was a count that was only done in the Southwest. You would be labeled Spanish surname if your name fell on this list that the U.S. Census Bureau had comprised of thousands of names culled from the Mexico City and the San Juan phone book. But once again, that was only if you lived in in states like Texas and California, New Mexico and Colorado. Even though they used the San Juan phone book from San Juan, Puerto Rico? (laughs) Yeah, I guess uh, they wanted to catch whatever Puerto Ricans could be in L.A. at that time or so. And they tried to fix that, right, 10 years later? Yeah, on the 1970 count, what they had was that on the long form, only select households were given these forms, and there was a question that said, are you Spanish origin? And there, people could mark off yes and then write in whatever nationality they were. They were on the road towards creating a category that would indicate some sort of umbrella panethnic grouping that wasn't necessarily tied to a practice, like the practice of speaking Spanish or Mm -hmm. to some objective factor like what your last name was. But is it putting too fine a point on it to say that it was a total failure? (laughs) The 1970 decennial census count really upset what we're calling the Latinx community these days. From the standpoint of the count, sure. Uh, There was a huge undercount, just as there was an undercount of African-Americans and uh, Latino community and their organizations from the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund to ASPIDA and other Puerto Rican groups took to writing to U.S. newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, assailing the U.S. Census Bureau for not adequately counting them in part because they had this now one select question that went to only 10% of households in the United States. And even when it went out there, it wasn't in Spanish. And they hadn't really mobilized a publicity campaign to actually teach people that, hey, there's this question that's about you that's incredibly important, that's going to be connected to political representation in all ways that we see you. And then by 1980, the term Hispanic shows up for the first time on the census form. And I would love for you to take us into the the behind-the-scenes fights that led to that. (laughs) 
Well, well, there were several. So the first fight is right after the 70 count when Latino organizations from Los Angeles to D.C. to New York start arguing that there was a huge undercount. Mm -hmm. They get the ear, really, of uh, the Nixon administration. And one wouldn't necessarily think of Nixon as a champion of uh, Latino rights or Latino identity, but Nixon was open to hearing uh, Latino concerns in some part because Nixon had grown up in Southern California. He'd grown up in a context where he knew Mexican-Americans existed, one, right. uh, and they were different. Their lives were different. Their experiences were different from whites. But also, too, Nixon was a savvy political campaigner. In 1972, he created uh, the first comprehensive Latino vote uh, political campaigns at the presidential level that the country had ever seen. I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Nixon had what he called Amigo buses that roamed around the southwest, but also the northeast and into Florida. Mm -hmm. And on these Amigo buses, those that roamed on the east coast played salsa and cumbia, and those that roamed <laughs> in the in the south Southwest played mariachi. This was before the Democratic Party did anything close to this. Oh, wow. And the Census Bureau, they're pressured by the Nixon administration to let in and create now this new advisory board comprised of the Mexicans and the Puerto Ricans that were incredibly loud, mm. and also <laughs> some Cuban sympathizers that had been big contributors to Nixon. One of the biggest points of debate is what would this group be called? Right. Um, some of the Spanish origin advisory members said, hey, why not use brown? We don't fit into these white, black, Asian categories. That's not us. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a demographer, if you're a statistician, that seems like an incredible nightmare. You know, brown can mean Filipinos, brown can mm -hmm. be Native Americans, brown can be South Asian Indians. This was a complete non-starter. It seemed like a headache more than anything. So they went down the list. Latin American, one of the problems with Latino politics is that they were seen as foreigners, that Latinos were seen as invaders and not inherently American. Right. And that one of their jobs was to really show that they were an American Hispanic constituency, that they were an American minority group, like African Americans, a minority that stretched from coast to coast and that were patriotic, that fought in wars, that contributed to American history, that built American cities. And so when a term like Latin American was used, right away it seemed to um, strike discord because it was seen as too foreign. Latino itself was closely seen as too close to Latin American and also too close to the word Latin. Mm -hmm. Hispanic was never a term that everybody loved, <laughs> but it was a term that got a lot of support from within Latinos in the Nixon and later the Ford administration. How did they make it stick? Yeah. So the census director literally picked up two phones. He called uh, all the Latino advocacy groups that were being set up in Washington, D.C. at that time. What year is this? Uh, 1976, 1977. Okay. They picked up the phone and they called uh, the National Council of La Raza. They called the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund and said, help. Mm -hmm. This is the category that we have. Can you help us promote it? And promote it they did. NCLR by itself set up town halls in places like Miami, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, showing people the new census form and telling them, look, we're Hispanic. This is us. This is our chance. This is our category. 
The second phone uh, the census director picked up was to Spanish language media. At that time, the company that would later go on to be called Univision uh, was growing rapidly. By 1980, they had television stations or uh, relay stations in most major U.S. markets. They ran documentaries, commercials, even a day-long telethon where different performers from across Latin America came out. Each of them held out the census form and says, hey, remember to fill out the census. We're Hispanic on the 1980 census. This is important for us. But we spent a lot of time talking about how Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and Cubans really wanted to be seen as distinct. And then, you know, you have this megaphone of Univision and you have these grassroots groups out there saying, no, but you're, we're together. We're doing this together now. And we're being called something you've never heard of before. It's Hispanic. <laughs> How successful was that? Well, certainly there wasn't as much of an undercount uh, in 1980 as there was in 1970. Uh, the number of Latinos grew exponentially. And years later, we figured out that it wasn't because people had babies. It's just because we counted them much better. All of the attention going out did bring people out to fill out the forms, for sure. How did we get from exponential growth to me saying I'm a Latina? Because <laughs> it takes on a life of its own. Once the category was made, everything from political groups to civic organizations to every other media group that would emerge, Spanish-language media group that emerge, would all use and, and draw on census data. As soon as the census numbers came out, uh, Latino lobby groups could then run the numbers and say, look, this is what Latino poverty looks like. This is what Latino educational attainment looks like. And they could go up to uh, the Department of Education, for example, and say, Latinos are the second largest minority group. And yet, look, our educational attainment pales that of white. You know, send money to our schools. You know, we demand money for these things, right? The same exact thing happened uh, in the market. As soon as the numbers came out, Univision releases the first Hispanic marketing manual in which they take uh, figures like income and they call it Hispanic buying power. And they take these census uh, reports and they go and they make pitches to McDonald's and Kellogg's and everybody else. And they start to slowly grow. During the 1980s, uh, Latino political organizations started to then demand that not only should we have a Hispanic category on the census, but we damn well should have it on birth certificates. Michigan, Georgia, uh, Louisiana, they still categorized Latinos as whites. And there was a large political push amongst these groups with even Spanish language media writing to them and saying, look, put us down as Latinos. We're not white. We're distinct. We're different. After the break, what happens when American notions of race are imposed on a place where people have very different senses of themselves. A lot of people were just absolutely stunned. Um, we had to create a whole separate codification for marking down all the nonverbal responses that we got to the racial question. Stay with us.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Best Fiends. When it comes to match-three style puzzle games, only one reigns supreme. Best Fiends. It's an action-packed adventure game and puzzle game rolled into one, so it's no wonder it's got so many five-star reviews. Plus, there's new content added all the time. If you're tired of crushing the same old candy, give Best Fiends a try. You can download Best Fiends free on the App Store or Google Play Store. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Gene, just Gene for now. Code Switch. So one of the trickiest things about thinking through Latino identity in the United States is that Latino and Hispanic are not really racial categories. It exists alongside race. There are black Panamanians and white Cubans who fit under this umbrella we call Latinos. It's one of the things that makes getting a portrait of Latinos or Hispanics in the U.S. on official forms like the census so complicated, as Shireen might say. Let's take Shireen's ancestral homeland, Puerto Rico, for example. In the 2010 census, about 8 in 10 people on the island identified as white alone. It's like all this time you thought Puerto Rico was the Bronx when it was really Utah. But something really big shifted between the last census in 2010 and the census taken last year in 2020. Because this time around, only 17% of the people on the island identified as white alone. We don't know yet all the factors that contributed to this big change in the way people are IDing. But we can guess that it probably doesn't have anything to do with, like, some major demographic displacement. Instead, it's more likely a story of people just thinking differently about the way they answer that census question. As our former Code Switch teammate Adrian Florido told us last year, most Puerto Ricans grow up learning in school that they are of mixed ancestry. Indigenous Tainos who lived on the island— Black African enslaved people brought to work on the island, and white European colonizers. But even with that, they were still overwhelmingly checking off that white box on the census, you know, until last year. So what was going on there? Well, before that census data came out last year, Adrian was trying to figure this out. And so he introduced us to Yadamar Bonilla, who had been looking into this very question for a little while now. Well, welcome to my world. <laughs> I've been trying to understand race in Puerto Rico for about half a decade now. <laughs> She's a professor at Hunter College in New York. And a few years ago, she did a survey in Puerto Rico, uh, as part of which she asked people a simple question, a, seem- a seemingly simple question, which was, what is your racial identity? I decided for, for fun to, instead of giving people boxes, to just leave it open to see what would people say. Uh, huh. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for that Me survey. Me too. <laughs> what did people say? And so when we would ask them about their racial identity, a lot of people were just absolutely stunned. Um, we had to create a whole separate codification for marking down all the nonverbal responses that we got to the racial question. And, and the first one was a silence. There was these long pauses. And so I instructed I had, a, I had a team of students that I was working with, and I instructed them to just wait. Um, and the other one that we had was people, we would say, what's your racial identity? And they would ask, well, I don't know. Well, what do you mean? What does that question mean? And Or they would say, what do you think I am? What, what should I put down? What do you have on there? They would want to see the boxes. And we're like, <laughs> oh, no, we don't have any boxes. <laughs> and so she said, she said, you know, that in Puerto Rico, that question, the race question, it's just, it's just not very common. So whereas in the United States, all the time you have to identify racially on 
every single form. You know, this is this constant ritual of identification that cements the idea that you are that little box that you're checking off. In Puerto Rico, people don't check boxes. You don't check them off in schools. You don't check them off in even in government uh, in forms and interactions. And in fact, she said, you know, one of the only times that people in Puerto Rico do confront this question of race uh, is on federal forms, like, like the census. That means that a lot of people have never thought about their racial identity outside of, of, of filling out a federal form. And so folks are just not used to being asked straight up, what are you? What's your race? It's just not something that Puerto Ricans ever talk about. I'm just imagining, like, never having had to think about your racial identity in any way. Mm-hmm. Well, Puerto Ricans talk around race all the time. They just don't use the same terminology that we do here in the United States. Right, right, There's a right. lot of referring to people by the color of their skin. We'll say, right. she's Blanca. Her over there, she's Trienya. You know, negra is used as a term of endearment in Puerto Rico, but it also can be used to shit talk someone right. who may have darker skin than you. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated the way we talk around race, but we definitely talk around race. Yeah, and that's mm. something that, you know, Yadimad uh, Bonilla brought up too. Like racial identity is never straightforward anywhere. You know, it's not like we're born thinking, oh, I'm this, I'm that. You know, racial identity is something that is learned through straight rituals, through social interactions. And so the way in which racial identity has been uh, inculcated here in Puerto Rico is complicated, wow. as, as is everything else in Puerto Rico. So, you know, the, the fact that people in... Puerto Rico don't check boxes, you know, don't really talk about race the same way it's talked about in the U.S. and the States. This is not an accident. Uh, and, and if you look back historically, it's actually how Puerto Rico's government wanted it. This was by design. So let's go back to the late 1940s. Puerto Rico, strategic Caribbean island, climaxes half a century as an American territory with the inauguration of the first governor elected by the people of Puerto Rico. That's Luis Munoz Marin. Right. Going forward, though, y'all, we should always refer to Puerto Rico as Puerto Rico, strategic Caribbean island. <laughs> Let's not. Good luck, keeping yes, your, good luck keeping your Puerto Rican friends if you do that, Gene. Just a warning. Yeah. Uh-oh. Anyway, you know, by, uh, by the 1940s, there was a lot of international pressure for, for the U.S. and other world powers to get rid of their colonies. Puerto Rico had been a U.S. colony for almost 50 years at this point since it had taken Puerto Rico from Spain. Um, mm-hmm. So... What the U.S. Congress did amid all this international pressure was, you know, not give Puerto Rico its independence. Um, it, it decided to keep its control over Puerto Rico. But it did allow Puerto Ricans to elect their own governor. And that was, as you said, Shireen, Luis Muñoz Marín. Mm-hmm. Puerto Ricanos, voy a izar cuando termine mis palabras. La bandera del pueblo de Puerto Rico. So Luis Muñoz Marín was this, this burly, charismatic politician who earlier in life had wanted Puerto Rican independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as governor, he championed its territorial status, this commonwealth status, uh, because he thought that as a territory, Puerto Rico, you know, could have some control over its own affairs, but still access federal money, attract U.S. investors, you know, modernize with all that money. Um, mm-hmm. And that it could do all of that, you know, without having to become a U.S. state, which would probably mean losing a lot of Puerto Rico's cultural identity. Our identity as Puerto Ricans was different from the identity of the of the U.S. This is Isar Godro, 
a professor at the University of Puerto Rico in the town of Calle. And she says one very important difference that Muñoz Marin saw between Puerto Rico and the U.S. was its relationship with race. It was that thing that made us different. Better. Better. Mm-hmm. Because we wouldn't, we didn't have the problems, those problems <laughs> that, that there were in the U.S. When she says problems, she means racism, right? <laughs> exactly. That was the view, right? Because Puerto Rico is a largely, you know, mixed-race society. And so... Uh, Muñoz Marín saw it kind of as, as raceless. Uh, and in fact, in his push to attract U.S. investors to, to help modernize the island, he often sold Puerto Rico as this kind of you know, racial utopia. We are living in a time in which all prejudice of race or of frontier or of culture or of language should be, must be relegated to the background if mankind is going to continue in its upward surge. This is Muñoz Marín giving a speech in New York in 1949, the year he became governor. The people of Puerto Rico are perhaps one of the clearest symbols of this absence of prejudice or of false pride or of false hatreds of some human beings as against other human beings. You know, that is a wonderful sentiment. It is. I wish it was true. Mm Mm-hmm. And people often, you know, talk about mixed identity in the way he's talking about it, right? Like like as a bridge to some harmonious beige future. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, and, and, you know, for Munoz Marin and, and his new government, this idea was sort of, you know, fundamental to, like, notions of Puerto Rican identity. Uh, and it wasn't only something he talked about. His government, like, felt so strongly that race was irrelevant that, uh, guess guess what it did? What? It just stopped asking people their race on the census. How can Puerto Rico do that? The census is a federal form and right. it is a colony of the United States. Oh, I'm sorry, Commonwealth. (laughs) Freudian slip. (laughs) Topic of perpetual conversation in Puerto Rico, importantly so. Well, you know, the reason it could do that, the reason it did that was because in the the 50s, Puerto Rico actually got permission from the federal government to conduct its own census. It called it El Censo Criollo, and it just eliminated the race question. It just just deleted it. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, so Isar Godro says this decision reflected a deeper philosophy in in Munoz Marin's government. That we did not need to document how many white people or how many black people because that ran counter to the idea of us being a mixed group of people. And if racism was not an issue, you didn't need to document, you know, in which way were black people disenfranchised vis-a-vis lighter-skinned people or not. So they, for 50 years, they didn't, they didn't uh, include the question of race in the Censo Criollo. Hmm. Wow. 50 years. So we're talking about from the 50s to like 2000 or so. Yeah. You know, by the 1990s, uh, Governor Munoz Marin was long gone. Right. The political party in power at that time was Puerto Rico's pro-statehood party. 
uh, and its strategy is often, you know, to make Puerto Rico look like as much as a state as possible uh-huh. in the hopes that someday Congress will just decide to grant it admission into the union. Uh, and so in the 90s, the government decided to readopt the federal form that it had gotten rid of, you know, 50 years earlier, and to readopt it starting in the 2000 census. Huh. And so when people got their form in the mail that year, there it was. There was this new question, right? Uh, the race question. And so what happened was first people were very surprised at this question. And many took the question as offensive, right? Because in a country where the ideology of harmony has been, you know, <laughs> um, drilled down your, <laughs> your brain, then you think it, the question is, is nonsensical. And yet there it was, asking people to pick a box or multiple boxes. Uh, and you already know what happened. 81% of people on the island checked white as their race. Just white, no other boxes. Right. This, this didn't make sense for a Caribbean island. In fact, the, the white population in the United States was 76%. So in a way, we were, you know, even whiter than the gringos. Sangrador <laughs> <laughs> says that on the radio, on TV at that time, commentators were asking, like, what are these numbers telling us? Like, what do they say about us? So when I saw those numbers, I thought, okay, so this is what happens when you have an imperial power impose their questions on its territory. Hmm. Yeah, because maybe if the census had terms like mulata or trienia, negra, and blanca, maybe people would say, oh, you know, I see myself there. Right. Right. And check those boxes. But I also thought, it was telling of the fact that we in this society, even though we have a discourse of mixture, people know that what is valued is whiteness. Thank you. I was hoping that she was going to say that because I've been listening to this. And the entire time I've been thinking, I'm not sure if Puerto Ricans check white because they don't know what else to check because they've been taught that they're a mix of all these different things. Uh-huh. Or if they check white because they fully understand that that's who counts in society. It counted under Spanish colonial rule. And, you know, that hasn't changed under U.S. colonial rule. Right. And for Odro, this isn't just political. It's also personal. We were sitting on the patio of her house in the town of Calle, and she went inside, and she brought out a picture of her father, her daughter, and herself. Godro's father is black. She is light-skinned with blue eyes. Uh, but her daughter, Amanda, is dark-skinned. And Godro says that Amanda was often bullied in school because of that. And me having to go to the school to talk about it to the, the teachers, and they they had no clue. They They... They, you know, their face were went, went blank. Since it's not something that is talked about, it's not part of the, you know, discourse. Those who don't suffer the the racism think that it never happens. Now, of course, there are, and there always have been, lots of people in Puerto Rico who are very vocal about race and racism and anti-blackness. Back in 2020, Adrian spoke to a group that was trying to address these things. The group is called Colectivo Ile, and one of their most active members at the time was a woman named Glory Ann Sasha Antonetti. Antonetti and her organization, Colectivo Ile, they've spent years giving anti-racist workshops at schools and at government agencies across the island. Uh, And this month, 
they've got this campaign, and they are targeting the census. Ooh. What does that mean exactly? What are they doing? Well, they're, they're making a big ask of people on the island. They are uh, asking them to, when they fill out the census form, when they, when they answer that race question, they want them to check the box for black. And then uh, our call to action is, no dejes que te borren del censo. Don't, don't let the census erase you. Because one of the things that has been happening with the black community here in Puerto Rico and the African descendant community is that we are very invisibilized. We, we don't have data about inequalities for black people or dark-skinned people. We don't have and she data. said that this lack of data has become painfully evident in the last few years. Oh, yeah. You know, Puerto Rico has gone through all of these recent crises it's been through. There was the economic crisis, Hurricane Maria, uh, earthquakes, and now we've got, you know, the coronavirus. And they want to know, like, are black Puerto Ricans more affected than other Puerto Ricans? You know, probably they think so, but because there is no data, they, they can't know for sure. And we are betting to that this campaign uh, will help us increase uh, the, the number of Afri- African descendants, maybe 10% uh, in this census, and that maybe we can continue uh, to increase that number. So, so, we can so how high do they want that number to get? Uh, well, as, as high as they can get it. Because um, here's, here's, here's the interesting thing. Um, they're not only asking dark-skinned Puerto Ricans to check yeah, the box for are, black. We are also encouraging people that are maybe light-skinned to, to reclaim their Afro-descendant. That's why Afro- so they want, like, light, bright, so, damn near white Puerto Ricans <laughs> to check the box for black, too? Yeah they, yeah, they want everyone, they want all Puerto Ricans on the island to check at least that box for black. But why, though? Um, if you know Puerto Ricans, the light, bright, almost white ones will, will never do that, <laughs> first of all. But anyway, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, I do feel like having everybody check the box for black might skew the data in a way that may not work in the way that they want yeah. it to, right? Like, if they're hoping to use this data to pinpoint racial inequities... How is that going to happen if everybody now on the island is black? Well, there are a couple of things at play here, right? I mean, this is about data and collecting good data. But Antonetti says that it's, it's also about making a point, right, about Puerto Rico's relationship with the U.S. She said, just, you know, just look at how President Trump treated Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. People are not treated at, in Puerto Rico as white people. Not here, not when they go to the United States. We are not white. So for us, it's very important that we have people that have a political answer to this question in the census. And she also says, look, the census is an imperfect tool to capture the nuances of racial identity. Totally. And that's something we've said a number of times on Code Switch in our various census episodes. Right, absolutely. But Antonetti says it's it's the tool we've got. And Mm -hmm. so if Puerto Rico is a mixed race society, then, you know, let's embrace that. We're going to check back in with Adrian on why this big change in racial identification on the census happened in Puerto Rico. But that's our show. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. You can follow us on IG at NPR Code Switch. If email is more your thing, ours is codeswitch at npr.org. You can holler at us there and subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcast. This episode was produced by Leah Danella, Jess Kung, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Walter Ray Watson. It was edited by Leah Danella and Allison McAdam. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive, K. 
Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kumar Devarajan, Alyssa Jong-Perry, Sam Yellowhorse-Kessler, Christina Kala, and Steve Drummond. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. I'm Gene Demby. Be easy, y'all. A special thanks to our funder, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, for helping to support this podcast.